Please open your Bible with me to the book of Jude. We will be reading verses 8 through 10 this evening in this little book. Let's give ear now to the reading of the holy and errant and life-giving word of God. Jude, verses 8 through 10. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel, Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever and ever. Let us pray. Almighty God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening with your word open before us. You have said that your word is like a fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock. Would you break up the rocks of stony hearts this evening Would you encourage your people with your piercing truth? Would you build us up in our most holy faith? Do this for the glory of Jesus, for this is what we pray in his name. Amen. The late 19th century Victorian poem, Invictus, is an attempt to glorify human bravery and perseverance through insurmountable challenges and difficulties in life. The poem, however, also turns to spiritual matters and life-after-death matters. And when it comes to these matters, that same courage and boldness turns into a foolhardy and unfounded self-assuredness. There's no fear of judgment after death. There's no authority in life other than the author of the poem himself. In fact, the final stanza of the poem brazenly proclaims that regardless of any moral constraints to which anyone might attempt to hold us accountable, regardless of any supposed judgment or condemnation after death, we are nonetheless the sole authority over ourselves. The poem concludes, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, thoughts such as this are the essence of humanism's hope in the indomitable power of the human spirit. But in reality, that's simply a fist shaken toward the heavens. There's something of that nature going on in the opponents against whom Jude is writing as he warns his Christian readers not to be swayed by the influence of intruders who had subtly crept in among them. Theirs was, a, you might say, a liberated Christianity, free from moral constraint, perhaps a living example of what Paul would describe as continuing in sin that grace may abound. 
And what Jude is doing in these verses is a a continuing expose, if you will, of their antinomianism, a term you may or may not be familiar with. That term comes from the Greek word for law, namos. They are anti-law. They are against God's law in their lifestyle and in their teaching, as we'll see. And here in these verses is is an acceleration, if you will, of what is already a harsh yet accurate analysis of these intruders, the purpose of which is the spiritual safety of Jude's believing readers. Uh, That which he asserted about them in verse 4, he further unfolds here. These men have perverted the grace of God into sensuality, and they are denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And so then the opposite lesson for believers is that as we see the nature of this antinomianism revealed, as we see the mask pulled off of it, we must all the more rely upon God's grace as we strive to live faithful Christian lives in that faith once for all delivered to the saints. In verses 8 through 10, Jude exposes this antinomianism by showing us three features of it. He shows us its autonomy, its audacity, and its ignorant instincts. And so the first feature of these verses I want to point out to you this evening are the accusations that expose the autonomy of antinomianism. Uh, In verse 8, we have accusations that show us five different qualities of the autonomous nature of this antinomian lifestyle. And the first of these I want you to notice is recklessness. There is a recklessness about their antinomianism. He begins in verse 8, yet in like manner these people also. Now the very first word of verse 8 that we have in in our ESV translation anyway, yet, is really meant to be a bit more emphatic than it comes across in this English translation. Uh, Jude is connecting the present day intruders to the three Old Testament types that he gave us in verses 5 through 7. Jude used those types to show that the judgment that was coming on these things has been known and has been foretold from long ago. Thus, the force of verse 8 is really something more like this. In spite of knowing all these things, nevertheless, regardless of these things that they can clearly see and have clearly been known, they also do the same things which will lead to the same end. Richard Bauckham summarizes the force of these opening words. In spite of these well-known examples of divine punishment, particularly in spite of the fact that Sodom's punishment is evident for all to see, these people commit the same sins. It is no secret, therefore, how their ways and message will end up. A, A lifestyle of immorality and sin given a free pass by couching it in the language of grace, it will end up in judgment. Yet they forge ahead, undeterred, unfazed. There is a recklessness to the autonomy of an antinomian lifestyle, and the believer reading this is meant to be warned by such recklessness, not to be so brash. The second quality of this autonomy is its pollution. Jude continues, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh. This kind of language is dealing in the realm of purity and moral defilement, the, the picture of, of, of staining something. The word defile means uh, to cause the purity of something to be violated by immoral behavior. 
And their immorality most certainly is in mind for Jude, uh, particularly given the uh, examples that he's already used in the past couple of verses. Paul would comment on such things in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And the grace of the gospel is not to be used as a license to commit sin, particularly sexual sins. Paul elsewhere uh, would say much to the contrary. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God, 2 Corinthians 7.1. But there's also in this idea of defilement a sense of an, an improper crossing of a prescribed boundary that Jude is conveying as he, as he connects this, uh, particularly to the previous examples in verses 5 through 7. Gene Green explains Jude's point regarding the heretics is that they transgressed proper bounds, as did Israel, the angels, and the Sodom and Gomorrahites, and they had therefore defiled the flesh. These heretics have, by their actions and by their message, proclaimed that when it comes to the Bible's prescribed boundaries of morality and purity, the rules simply do not apply to them. The third feature of this autonomy I want you to see is outright rebellion. Jude continues, these people reject authority. The word for authority here is Uh, sometimes been understood as civil or church authorities. Sometimes it's been understood as uh, angelic figures. But the root form of this word, which helps us understand Jude's meaning here, is the Greek word for Lord. The Greek word kurios is what we get our word for Lord in the Bible. Uh, Thus, this description is connecting back to his accusation in verse 4 of their denial of our only Master and Lord. And Jude will do this with his uh, catchwords, linking sections together at various places in the book. The authority spoken of here is the absolute sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ over every creature. So, so not only are they defiling their own bodies, they are, as Gene Green says, revolting against the authority of the Lord himself. See, sin immorality, any of the Bible's prescriptions against such things are not so called because it violates some Judeo-Christian tradition. Sin and immorality are our rebellion against the Lord Jesus himself and his rightful rule over every creature. The fourth feature Jude points out in verse 8 of this autonomy is derision. There is a derisive character to their autonomy. Jude accuses them, saying, these people blaspheme the glorious ones. Literally, they blaspheme glories. And the word blaspheme here, we need to uh, note that it really means, in its more general sense, a sense of reviling or slandering. This is, this is a word Jude is using as one of those catchwords, which is linking verses 8, 9, and 10 together. They slander or revile glories. And most commentators, I think, rightly understand this as a reference to angels. If that's the case, what does Jude mean by accusing these intruders of slandering angels? 
There are a few references in Scripture that give us a little bit of insight into the role that the angels play in the moral order of the world. In Acts chapter 7, for instance, Stephen makes mention of angels having a role of some sort in delivering the law to Moses. The book of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 2, will make an allusion to the same thing. And in Galatians chapter 3, Paul even more explicitly references this, saying the law was, quote, put in place through angels. Don Carson helps us understand a bit of Jude's meaning here. He says, angels sometimes are seen as the guardians of God's established order and thus his authority, or the ones who have mediated God's revelation to us. To slander them then looks like rebellion against God's authority. These heretics were were completely rejecting uh, and perhaps even likely scoffing at any binding moral authority that the law, mediated in some sense through angels, had over them or anybody, and thus in their rejection of this, they were reviling the glories. This was, as Richard Baucom describes, a rejection of the moral order over which the angels preside. They understood Christian freedom to mean freedom from moral authority and therefore from the authority of angels. The final feature of this autonomy of their antinomianism that Jude's accusation shows us in verse 8 is pretension. This is a reckless autonomy. It's a defiled autonomy. It's a rebellious autonomy. It's a derisive autonomy. Now it's a pretentious autonomy. They're, they're defiling the flesh, their rejection of authority, their, their blaspheming angels. All three of these specific accusations are said to be by Jude as the result of relying on their dreams. This is a reference to revelatory visions, or perhaps more properly here, the claim to have had revelatory visions. The idea that divine revelation could and and often did come through dreams and visions was not uncommon in the Old Testament or even the, the apostolic era of the New Testament in which Jude is writing. And often, real revelation did come through such dreams or visions. However, what also often took place was the claim by false prophets to have received revelation in such a manner. Christopher Green explains what was happening here. It looks as if the issue facing Jude was that under the cloak of a pretended revelation from God, these dreamers are laying claim to a position of inspired leadership within Jude's church. So whether or not they actually had any dreams or visions, the emphasis here is on the counterfeit nature of their claim to authority behind their lifestyle and their message. Jude's uh, intruders were not merely living an antinomian lifestyle. They were, as we see now, teaching an antinomian message. The Bible speaks directly and harshly concerning those who would make false claims to authority such as this. In fact, the Old Testament even gave guidelines on how to determine the validity of such claims. In fact, the primary passage about this in Deuteronomy chapter 13, we read that the standard against which supposed visionary revelation was to be judged were God's commandments. 
If a dreamer of dreams, the same terminology as Jude uses here, were to come along with an authoritative message, so to speak, even if their vision were to come true, here's how you would know whether or not their claim was legitimate if they were leading you to disobey God's commandments. Then you would know beyond the shadow of a doubt that any claim they made to an authoritative revelation was completely false and it was to be dealt with swiftly and harshly. The prophet Jeremiah reveals God's opinion of the makers of such claims. Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. Jeremiah 23, 32. This sort of antinomian message by those in influential and authoritative roles in the church can take place very blatantly, as it was. But it can also sometimes be subtle. Remember, these had crept in originally unnoticed. They were using the language of grace. And thus there was a real danger of Jude's flock being influenced by them. Their lifestyle and their teaching rests entirely on false pretense. Well, in verse 8, Jude thoroughly exposes the autonomy of antinomianism. The second main feature of this text is in verse 9, where Jude uses an analogy that condemns the audacity of antinomianism. Here again, Jude, as he is prone to do, uses a historical example to further his argument. The difficulty with this particular example is that if you know your Bible well, you'll know that this example is not found anywhere in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 34 records the death and the burial of Moses, but does not include the details that Jude refers to in verse 9 of our text. The incident to which Jude refers comes instead from extra-biblical Jewish tradition. Now, scholars have, have pieced together what may be the source from which Jude is drawing, but we really don't know for certain the exact source. What I, I think we can say is that Jude is clearly making use of an oral, or more likely a written, tradition, and this is, again, something familiar to his readers, given the way he uses it here to illustrate his point. Now, clearly, other things happened in the history of Israel that were not recorded in the Bible. Many of these things are recorded or elaborated on in other books. In fact, there are various places in the Old Testament where other records or books are even mentioned and talked about. Now, some people will understand Jude here is not necessarily claiming that this is a true story, but that he's simply making a rhetorical use of literature that's familiar to his readers, maybe something akin to a contemporary sermon illustration. Uh, like a preacher who would refer to Frodo's quest into Mordor. Although there's no way to demonstrate that position conclusively, and the way that Jude is referring to this incident makes that a pretty difficult case to make, I think. Uh, Non-canonical books and traditions concerning the history of Israel, of course, would contain varying mixtures of truth and errant tradition, and no doubt whatever source Jude is drawing from is no different. Jude's use, though, however, 
of, of extra-biblical oral or most likely written tradition does not require us to believe that Jude thought that the source itself was inspired or that everything in that source was necessarily 100% truth. What we can believe, however, is that by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Jude is confirming that this particular story from Israel's extra-biblical tradition is true. Here's how Douglas Moo puts it. We must, I think, at this point, fall back on our belief in the inspiration of the Bible. Jude wrote under the direction of the Spirit of God, who led him to this particular passage and kept him from citing other texts that did not contain true stories. Now, whichever way one understands Jude to be using this story, it's even more important for us to understand his point. And the gist of the tradition from which Jude is drawing is this. Here is Satan demanding that Moses not have an honorable burial because he was guilty under the law. The accuser, as Satan is known, is bringing accusations against Moses, according to the tradition, in this case for killing the Egyptian during the period of the Exodus. Basically, the accusation was that Moses, according to the accuser, Satan, has disqualified himself from a proper burial as one of God's people due to his guilt. And Michael simply replies in this tradition, the Lord rebuke you. Jude explains that Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. Again, there's that catchword that's linking verses 8 through 10 together. And again, here it's not used in, in our modern sense of blasphemy against the deity, but a, but a demeaning slander or a reviling. Now, many commentators understand Jude to be saying here that Michael was refusing to rail against or slander the devil. I think, though, as Richard Baucom points out, the idea that the devil should not be insulted is an unparalleled idea in Jewish and early Christian literature, a questionable principle in itself and not a necessary deduction from Jude's text. Or as D.A. Carson succinctly puts it, it is difficult to comprehend how it is possible to slander the devil. The better way to understand this is in the context of the language of a legal disputation. All of the language in verse 9 that Jude is using is, is courtroom language. The word for contending, when the archangel Michael contending with the devil carries the sense of a legal dispute. So the idea is that Michael did not presume to issue the legal condemnation against the devil for his slander and reviling of Moses. The word translated pronounce in our ESV, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, is used in the New Testament only in the context of judicial legal language. And it carries the idea of inflicting a, a sentence of punishment or imposing or pronouncing judgment. So here is Michael, the, the advocate, not the judge, did not presume to pronounce the guilty verdict of malicious slander. Satan was guilty of exactly that. But Michael does not take it upon himself to make that judgment. He did not presume. There's, a, there's the connotation of audacity in that language. He did not dare do such a thing because it was not his place. What Jude is doing here is making an argument from the greater to the lesser. Here's Michael, that, that one of the very highest angelic order. He did not dare reach beyond his own authority 
David De Silva explains the argument Jude is making. He says, If Michael, himself an archangel, a higher order of being than the teachers, did not dare <clears throat> to pronounce judgment upon Satan for defamation against Moses' character or dismiss Satan's charges on his own authority, how much less should the intruders, being mere humans, presume to acquit themselves of the charges that the holy angelic ministers of the law would bring against their self-indulgent and insubordinate practices. The ultimate legal judgment in matters of guilt before God is God's prerogative and his alone. In fact, the, the word rebuke there, Michael's reply, the Lord rebuke you, has a much stronger sense than a, than a reprimand or a, or a scolding. <clears throat> Michael's statement is pointing toward the final judgment. Richard Baucom explains, these words carry the connotation of divine conflict with the hostile powers, the outcome of which is the utterance of the powerful word by which the demonic forces are brought under control. Hence, they are used for God's eschatological subjugation of his enemies. We're talking about the final judgment here. So it's not that Michael didn't revile or slander the devil. It's that he would not pronounce the judgment against the devil for having slandered and reviled Moses because he could not do so on his own authority, even though it was absolutely true that Satan was guilty of slander. The case Satan was making against Moses in those accusations could be settled only in the ultimate courtroom of divine justice. So the, the contrast with the antinomian intruders that Jude is describing is, is, is how, as Richard Bauckham puts it, even if they were as righteous as Moses and had the authority of an archangel, they would not be above accusations of sin under the law. Jude's analogy here with Michael is to, is to condemn the audacity in that what they're really doing in their rejection of any binding moral obligation to God's law is that they are taking the very place of God, the judge himself. The, the, the essence of antinomianism is placing yourself above any accusation, making yourself subject to no authority, and not even, Jude says, the highest archangel would dare do such a thing. Gene Green sums it up. They will allow no voice, no authority other than their own. Their insolence is beyond measure. Well, we've seen the autonomy and the audacity exposed and content, condemned. Finally, in verse 10, Jude shows us uh, the ignorance and instinct that produce antinomianism. Jude returns from his example of Michael, comes back to refer again to these people, linking us back to his topic from verse 8. Unlike Michael, who wouldn't dare to make a judgment about something even though it was totally true. These people revile and slander what they don't understand. They make claims to authoritative knowledge and thus to being liberated from obedience to the law under the cloak of grace, but the reality is they don't understand spiritual things whatsoever. Their flippant view of sin, their, their dismissal out of hand, of any duty to obey the Lord is, is exhibit A in their ignorance of the very gospel itself. 
Because the believer who really understands grace knows that it's grace that saved a wretch like me. And they make it clear they don't understand the power of the gospel, the power to change, the power to grow. They give grace lip service, but it exists merely as a cloak for continuing in sin. They don't have a category for how the psalmist could say things like, your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. Psalm 119, 129. Or, or the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Psalm 19, 8. In, in their selfish independence and in their arrogance, they are mocking and reviling biblical spirituality that of which they are utterly ignorant. They don't understand the reality that the forgiveness of sins came at the highest cost, where the wrath of God had to be satisfied, diverted from those who deserved it, and quenched and soaked up by the only one who never deserved it. They did not have the spiritual eyes to, to understand the sentiment of the psalmist when he said, O oh Lord, if you should count iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. The the, the realization of what it actually took to wipe away our sins is meant to make us tremble in humble worship and adoration and a growing love for God, and it leads to the result of a life of growing obedience. Let me be clear, though. I I am not, and Jude is not in in these verses, speaking of the Christian struggling with sin, finding himself or herself often all too weak and failing and stumbling. That is not who Jude is talking about here. The antinomianism that Jude is condemning is the opposite of of Paul's mournful diagnosis of his own experience in Romans 7. The things I want to do, I'm not doing. The things I don't want to do, I find myself doing, O wretched man that I am. That, That is the Christian's experience of the inner warfare between flesh and spirit, what Jude is describing is a don't-care attitude, a lack of struggle and warfare against sin. One who cannot be told or exhorted to obey. We, We see the small seeds of this when an exhortation to gospel obedience is met with the accusation of legalism. Obedience to God's commands, understood rightly, is not legalism. I think it's easy, due to particular circumstances, for some to have an overly sensitive radar, if you will, to legalism. But our duty to obey God's commandments as believers is not equal or in any way akin to the Pharisees' perversion and externalizing and minimizing of God's law. They revile that which they do not understand. They didn't understand that the response of, of, of a regenerate heart upon every fresh realization of the cross and what it means uh, is this, were the whole realm of nature mind that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. Their lifestyle and, and their message was really betraying the fact that they were unregenerate false teachers. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 
Jude goes on in verse 10 to speak of that which they do understand. He says that they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. And here, by this, he reduces their behavior to the level of the brute beasts operating on natural urges alone. In fact, that word instinctively, uh, Michael Harmon explains, highlights that the immoral actions of the false teachers flow from their fallen state. Because they are governed by their fallen natural instincts, they are like unreasoning animals, incapable of acting on the basis of anything other than instinct. All of their claim to authoritative knowledge, their, their, their bogus use of grace, all that they represent, Jude clears it away and says, let's call this what it is. They are like the irrational animals simply living to fulfill their cravings. Richard Baucom says, Though they claim to be guided by special spiritual insight gained in heavenly revelations, they are in fact following the sexual instincts which they share with the animals. The, the lie of secular humanism, and particularly the sexual revolution over the last 50 years, is that by casting off all divine moral constraint, Uh, makes us free and liberated to be all that we can be. But what really that does is reduces mankind to the level of unreasoning animals following base cravings alone. So you see, it turns out that they actually do have a master that they obey after all. It is the base cravings of a fallen nature. And there's also an, an, an interrelatedness between the fulfilling of the lust of the flesh and the dulling of the spiritual senses. This is sort of a symbiotic spiral. Uh, the more one fulfills the lust of the flesh, the duller one's spiritual senses become. There's a warning in that for every believer to keep a close watch on our souls. This is, this is the interrelated symbiotic spiral and it only goes in one direction. This, this final statement of verse 10 is quite literally a damning indictment. Their end is certain. They are destroyed by all that they do not, by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. They're destroyed by the very things that they are living for. It is no liberation to cast off moral restraint and live an autonomous, authentic human life by your own standards. It leads to ruin. Simon Kistemacher says, When men live by instinct, they abandon even natural law and consequently perish. They place themselves on par with the animals. But because of their refusal to obey even the laws God has placed in nature, they are destroyed. That is sobering language indeed. They are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Well, in conclusion, if we go back to that scene in verse 9 when Moses uh, was being accused of guilt under the law by the accuser himself, Satan, Michael was not able on his own authority to dismiss those charges. It was the Lord to whom he referred 
that issue. And there is biblical language from the Old Testament that Jude is alluding to in the telling of this story. Uh, It's from the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verse 2. There we read of the priest, Joshua, standing in his filthy clothes, being accused by the accuser, with nothing to say in his own defense. Only this time it wasn't Michael who uttered those words of rebuke. It was the Lord himself, the one who really is the judge and the one who really would become the Savior by shedding his own blood for the sins of his people. Thus, Satan's accusations are thus dismissed. The guilt of sin was removed. Joshua was given the pure vestments of the righteousness of another. There's another time the accuser of God's people is mentioned. It's in Revelation chapter 12, and there we read this. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. See, the problem really would be for every person is that the accusations of the accuser are all too true. There's no shortage of evidence that would convict us in the ultimate court of heaven, and that is bad news indeed. But the good news is that there is something that can wash away my sins, the blood of Jesus. And if we've come to him in faith and repentance, uh, we've been given new hearts, new desires, new instincts, new life under a good and kind and gracious master. You see, the answer to, to antinomianism is not to begin doing better. The answer is to understand more fully and to apply the gospel of the Lord Jesus. What a terrifying thing it would be to really live as if we were the captain of our own soul, the master of our own fate. When when that is true, there's only one destination, Uh, but there is another who can pilot your soul, who can command your destiny. Behold, today is the day of salvation. Uh, Beloved, Jesus said not to fear that which can kill the body but to fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. The Christian can live in a scary world knowing that all that it costs to save him from the wrath of God has been paid in full. For the unbeliever, the message here is to turn and to be saved. Come just as you are to be made that which you could never make yourself, a child of God growing in his grace understanding for the first time what every true believer rejoices to understand, that which is put so well by the hymn writer, just as I am, poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yea, all I need in thee to find. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Amen. Heavenly Father, would you bless your word in the hearts of your people. Bless us this week as we finish our week in various places. Cause us to look to you in faith all the more. In Jesus' name, amen.